So, how many of you have ever had a, uh, a Mormon share with you their message of salvation? How many people? So, a, a, a good number of us. I, uh, I remember, at least you know, one of the first times I can remember this happening to me, I was in a Walmart in Beardstown, Illinois. Just happened to be there during college. I was shopping, I was standing in one aisle, and I heard from, from the next aisle over someone talking about Jesus. And being a curious college student, I decided to kind of wander over to the next aisle and see what was going on. And when I got there, there were these two guys uh, dressed up in suits, had on name tags, and they had this, this poor man cornered uh, as he was trying to buy some auto parts. I don't remember whether I, I put this detail in, but I'm pretty sure they had bicycle helmets as well. And I stood there uh, like a good Christian college student and pretended to shop and listen to their conversation. And I was really surprised by what I heard because I heard them saying a lot of the same things that I would have said if I was in their shoes. They talked about uh, how Jesus lived this, this you know, great life, how he was this, this good person, this great teacher. Uh, he you know, sacrificed all these good things they told this guy. And I sat there and I thought, that they're not telling him everything. They're not telling him everything that Mormons believe. They aren't telling him that they don't believe in Jesus like we believe in Jesus. They don't believe in the Trinity. They're not telling him that, uh, you know, that, that if you're a Mormon, you can't drink caffeinated coffee. They didn't tell him that. They didn't tell him about the Book of Mormon. They didn't tell him about Joseph Smith. They didn't tell him that if you're a really good Mormon, one day you get to have your own planet to populate. I would have loved to see that guy's reaction if they told him that. But they didn't. They just kind of stuck to the basics. They left out all the scary details. But as I've thought about that, since that time, I've encountered other uh, you know, people from other religions who do a very similar thing. I've thought that for a lot of Christians in America, we do a very similar thing when we share the truth or part of the truth about God's message of salvation. We, we leave out some of the important details. Let me explain what I mean. And, and to explain, I'm going to use uh, this funnel over here and let me say that I, I really don't like it when pastors or preachers use props. It annoys me. And so it really bothers me that I'm going to do it. <laughs> but I couldn't think of, of any better way to explain this, so I, I brought my big funnel with me to church tonight. So, a lot of Christians are tempted to present the gospel like this. There's this, this big opening into the kingdom. They'll say, you know, grace is free, believing is easy, all you have to do is, is just pray this little prayer and you'll get entrance into the kingdom. That's all you have to do. It's, it's really easy, it's really simple, that's it. Just come just as you are. And so people come. 
People, people accept that. They, they accept Christ. But then they, they live, they start trying to live the Christian life. They, they grow in their faith. They try to grow in their faith. And then all of a sudden, somebody flips the switch on them and tells them, it's not enough just to believe. You also have to do what the Bible says. You, you can't get angry anymore. You can't lust. You can't steal. You can't lie. You can't uh, do all these things. And you also have to start doing all these things. You need to read your Bible. You need to go to church on Sunday. You need to uh, do what the Bible says. You need to live like God tells you to live. And so all of a sudden, this, this big entranceway into the kingdom shrinks down like this funnel does. And these people get, get pressed in by all these restrictions that the people now tell them they have to do. And so most of them, and statistically we see this happen, walk away. They look for something else. They look for something more like this big opening that they came through at the beginning. They say, I didn't sign up for all these restrictions. I signed up for this easy, free thing that I didn't have to do anything for. But, when we and when other Christians share the message of Christ like this, they're not really sharing the message of Christ. They're sharing some version of it that isn't accurate, that's not true. It's a a humanized version of God's truth. We're going to see in our passage tonight that when Jesus talks about it, he actually talks about it like this. He talks about the fact that the, the entrance into the kingdom is difficult. It's narrow. It's hard. It's almost impossible But once you get inside, once you enter into the kingdom, it it opens up. It becomes freeing. You find freedom. And that's what we're going to see in our text tonight. So let's go ahead and read our passage, and I'll explain uh, this this illustration. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the end of the rows. You'll find tonight's passage in those Bibles on page 812. We're going to be reading the the seventh chapter of Matthew, verses uh, 13 through 23. We're kind of wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. We have two more weeks. We're going to start reading in Matthew seven thirteen. These are Jesus' words to us. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? 
And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son and that your Son didn't just live here and die here, but that he also taught when he was here. God, and that these words are from him and they're for us. So we ask that tonight you would help us uh, to apply them to our hearts to apply them to our lives and to to seek to listen to what your Son tells us in His Word. It's in His name we pray. Amen. So the main point of this passage tonight that we're going to see is that there are two ways to live. Two ways to live. The first way is a way that ends in life. The second way is a way that ends in death. Pretty simple. So the first thing we should actually notice about the first two verses, that there are just two options. There's this this easy way, this wide gate. And Jesus says that, that that way, that path, that road ends in destruction. It ends in death. And there's this other way, this narrow, difficult way. And it ends in life. Those are the only two options. Right at the beginning, Jesus has, has cut off all other ways. He says there's just two. That's it. There, there aren't any other options. And this lines up with what we see elsewhere in Scripture. When John is talking to the Jews, uh, when Jesus is talking to the Jews in the Gospel of John, he tells them, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus says. He says that there aren't any other ways. If a Jewish person wants to get to God, the only way for them to get to God is through Christ. Peter, later in the book of Acts, is arrested by a group of Jews for the same thing, for for preaching who Jesus is, for saying that Jesus is the way of salvation. And he responds to them the same way. He says this, he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's what Jesus says. It's what Peter says. It's what we see everywhere in the New Testament. Now I realize that that's not politically correct. That's not nice. That's not uh, okay with people like the ACLU for me to say that. For me to say there's one way and that's it. Anybody else is rejecting God, is rejecting Christ, is rejecting life and salvation. That's what Jesus says. He says that everyone, every single person can be broken down into two groups. Those who are on the road of life and those who are on the road to death. And he says that there are many. He says, for the gate is wide and the way is easy it leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. There's many on the road to death. But on the road to life, there's just few. Those who find it are few. That's what he tells us. Uh, a few years ago, I had a friend who went to this conference, and there was a panel of pastors, and someone asked the question uh, of these pastors. They said, if you could ask God any question, what would you ask them? And the person who told me the story said that John Piper responded to the question and said this. 
He said, I would ask God how many people will be saved and then why so few? He'd ask him how many people are going to be saved and when God gave him that answer, he would ask why so few? And we all need to wake up to that reality. Wake up to this reality that Jesus is talking about in this passage that those who find life are few. Whatever the answer is to that question, how many will be saved, our response should be, why so few? You hear people talk about how we need to live with an eternal perspective. We need to consider the fact that our lives don't end when we die. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about realizing that this is the way the world is. That there are just two groups of people. And that most of them are in this group that ends in death. That means most days of the week, if not every day of the week, wherever we go, whether it's to the grocery store, to the gym to work out, the people we walk by, drive by, talk to, our neighbors, our friends, our family, all those people we interact with on a regular basis, Jesus says that many, Many are on the road to destruction and few, few of those people, those people we care about, those people we love, those people that we are around all the time, few of them are on the road to life. And the question for us, if we trust in Christ, the question for us is, are we going to try to do something about it? Are we going to share with them What Christ says is the way. Are we going to help them find this narrow way that somehow by His grace we've found? The second thing that we need to see in these first two verses is this. It's how Jesus describes this this way of life. He says that it's a narrow gate and that it's hard. It's difficult. He says, enter by the narrow gate. He says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. But the question we should ask is, Jesus says it's hard here, but he also says, my burden is easy, my yoke is light. He says that in Matthew chapter 11, just just four chapters later. We're going to get to that in a few months. We're going to see him say that. So, So how does that fit with what Jesus says to us here? How can it both be hard and difficult and narrow and also easy and light? Just four chapters later. Well, I think that in order to understand that, we've got to consider what it is that Jesus is saying in both places. So here in Matthew 7, our our passage tonight, what he's talking about is how we enter into the kingdom. how, How we get in the door, get in the gate. And then in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says his his yoke is easy, his burden is light, this is what he says. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There, what Jesus is talking about is he's not talking about getting into the kingdom. He's talking about what life in the kingdom is like. So he's, he's talking to these Jewish guys, these scribes and these Pharisees, who tell people that if they want to have a right relationship with God, they need to do all these things. 
You can't do this kind of work on this day. You need to do these things on these days. You need to, to tithe this much on these things. You need to, to do all these things if you want to be right with God. And if you don't do any of those things or you do them in the wrong way, those Pharisees are going to tell you that you're not right with God. And Jesus says life in the kingdom isn't like that. His way isn't like that. His burden is easy and his yoke is light. This comes back to the funnel. In Matthew 7, he's talking about getting into the kingdom. This, this narrow, hard entrance. But then once inside, once, once in the door, once we're through the gate, which is hard to get through, he says that his burden is easy and his yoke is light, and that's when it, when it opens up. And we find freedom from things like addiction and depression and anger. And we find that we're empowered to do things like love and serve other people and show mercy and make peace and live the life that Jesus has called us to live. So it's, it's not like that one way where you, you come in this, this big, wide open, easy door then all of a sudden people throw these burdens on you. Jesus says that it doesn't work that way. Getting in is hard. But once you do, it's, it's freeing. You find life. You find what it is that you've been searching for your whole life. So the question is, if it's so hard to get in, it's almost impossible for us to get in, how do we get in? What do we need to do to get in? I think the Sermon on the Mount teaches that we need to do one thing. The very first words that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount are, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying there, if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, if you want the kingdom of heaven to belong to you, then you need to be poor in spirit. That's what you need to do to get in this this narrow, this difficult way. See, that's where we we can tell that it doesn't line up with us coming just as we are. Because naturally, we aren't that way. Naturally, we don't recognize that we're poor in spirit. We're we're prideful. We're selfish. We try to earn our standing before God. We think that if, if we do all these things, then he's going to like us. But when Jesus talks about us being poor in spirit, he's telling us to recognize the fact that we don't have any hope before God. We're, we're spiritually bankrupt. Our account is, is empty for spiritual things. Instead, we need Him to do something for us because we can't do anything as humans to get to where He is. We need Him to come down to us and change us. And it's when we've realized that, when we've, we've laid down all self-righteous claims, when we've laid down all are trying to earn our way in the door. When we do that, when we take hold of what He's done for us, then we gain entrance into the kingdom. But there's no other way. And He tells us that those who find it are few. One of the reasons why is found in in verses 15 through 19. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. From everything Jesus says to us about false prophets, we can, we can draw three conclusions, three implications which can help us as we seek to live life. The first is pretty simple. Not all prophets are true. If Jesus says that there's false prophets, that means that some people who claim to be prophets aren't going to be good ones. See, just because somebody, even me, says they're teaching the things of God, it doesn't mean that they are. All you have to do is turn on the TV to see this. And Jesus tells us to be watching for them, to be on our guard, to be ready when we hear them. But in order to do that, we need to evaluate what we hear. And in order to evaluate what we hear, we need to know what we believe. If, if we don't know what the Bible says about stuff, when people say that the Bible says this or the Bible says that, we're not going to know. We're just going to have to take their word for it and trust them. But Jesus says that we need to be equipped. We need to know what he says. We need to know what his word says so that when people distort the message of Christ or distort the truth of God's word, we're ready to respond. We're ready to ask them questions. We're ready to clarify what they say. And I have to tell you, just as, as a pastor, I love it when I get questions. I love it when someone asks me, you said this, but that didn't sound right. Chances are I said what I wanted to say the wrong way. Or maybe I didn't explain it as clearly as I thought I did. So I I love it because that shows me that you all are paying attention to what you hear. Not just what I say, but what Jesus says to us in his word. The second implication we we can draw from these false prophets is that truth can be violated. You know, we live in a day now where people say that there, there is no absolute truth. It doesn't exist. Truth is relative. But if you notice, Jesus didn't say, well, I guess it's true for these false prophets, even though it's not true for me. He didn't say that. He said, they're not true prophets because they're saying something that's false. They're saying something that's not true, which means that there must be some standard of truth. And it's not this you know, mystical standard of truth somewhere out in the universe. It's Jesus himself. And he says that when somebody says something that contradicts him or contradicts his word, then it's not true. They're a false prophet because they're not truthfully declaring his message. But again, in order to know this, we've got to know what we believe and why we believe it. The third implication we can draw from these false prophets is that the truth, the gospel, the message of Christ, it has enemies. These false prophets aren't just people that kind of willy-nilly stumble into something that's false. Jesus says that they are ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. These people are trying to disguise themselves as true prophets so that other people will be deceived by them and misled by them. We know this is true because the image Jesus gives us. Now, for us, you know, we know obviously grapes don't come from thorns. Uh, fruit doesn't come from thistles. We know that. You know, that, that we would never mistake that. But in Jesus' world, there's this plant called the buckthorn. And from far away, it has these little blackish, bluish berries that look like grapes. And so if you're out walking along one day, and you see this bush in the distance with these berries on it, you might think, those are grapes, and I'm hungry. So you walk over there only to get close enough 
and realize that it's just this thorn bush that has these berries on it, and you don't want to eat them because they'll make you sick. It's the same thing with the figs. There's these thistles that have flowers that uh, at some point of their life, they end up resembling a fig. And so if you're walking along, you'll see them, and you think, that's a piece of fruit that I want to eat. But you get close and realize that it's just kind of some shriveled, dying flower. These false prophets are the same way. They, they pretend to be something else. They want to be mistaken. They're not just stumbling in the lies. But Jesus says that we will know them by their fruits. Just like when you walk up to the bush and eat it, you recognize that it's not a grape. Sooner or later, these people who are false prophets are going to slip up. They're either going to say something that's blatantly false that you know isn't true, or their lifestyle isn't going to match up with what they say they believe. They're going to do something. They're going to act some way that shows you that they really don't give a rip about what the Bible says. And just like there's false prophets, there will also be false disciples. We see these in verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is explaining here that not everybody who claims to be a follower of Christ really is. These people have impressive resumes. They call Jesus by his name. They speak in his name. They even cast out demons and do other mighty works in his name. I gotta tell you, if I, if I saw that happen, if I saw somebody cast out a demon or, or do some miraculous thing, I would think, oh my goodness, that person is much more spiritual than I am. I've certainly never done anything like that. But Jesus says, that's not a sign that they really know him. That's not a sign that they truly believe in him, that they truly obey him. Just because they've done these, these great, these wonderful things, that doesn't matter. And if you've been around church long enough or been around church people long enough, you've probably at one point been involved in a conversation where somebody asks a question, how can I know that I'm saved? How can I know? I have doubts. I wonder. You know, when I went forward when I was little, did I really believe it? And of all these things that Jesus describes these people as, he says there's one thing. There's one thing that, that reveals someone who's a true disciple. It's this. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The answer is clear. If we want to know the answer to that question, if we want to know the answer to the question, am I really a believer in Christ? We need to ask ourselves, do we obey his will? Do we know what his will is? Have we studied the Bible? Do we apply it to our lives? Do we seek to conform our lives into what Jesus says we should live? How we should live? How we're, we're called to behave in the world? Do we do those things? That's what answers that question. Nothing else. It's not some, some feeling we have, some experience we have, some uh, thing we've done in the past for God. The only thing that Jesus says is a true sign 
are those that do the will of his Father. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge, we have to point out that doing the will of God, it it doesn't earn salvation. I can't work and work and work and work and work and try to do the things that God says I need to do in an effort to earn his grace, to earn his favor. That, That doesn't work. The Bible's really clear about that. But doing good things, doing the will of God is evidence that I have experienced that grace. If I have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, then I'm going to do good works. The Bible's also clear about that. At the very beginning, I said tonight, I said that that grace is free, but it's not cheap. A lot of times people talk about free grace and they do it in a way that cheapens what Christ has done for us. You see, grace comes to us at a great cost. The cost of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And if we we forget about that, if we play that down, then we're going to miss what he's done for us. The gospel tells us a story of a God who who sent his son into the world. Into a world full of, of people like us who are broken who've rejected God, who have rebelled against God and just done whatever we've wanted to do with the creation that he's given us. But even though we're rebellious, he still sent his son into the world. He sent his son into the world to experience life as a human, to live life just like we live life. Only unlike us, he lived a perfect life. He didn't do wrong. He always did the will of his father. Even though he did that, even though he lived that perfect life, he was still punished as a criminal. He was punished as one who was guilty even though he was innocent. And he allowed himself to be beaten and whipped and mocked and punished and ultimately killed for us. He bore the penalty that that we were due that we who are guilty deserve. For, for everything that we, we have done in the past, everything we're going to do in the future, for, for everything, he paid the penalty that we deserve for those things. And he did it, the Bible says, to, to bridge that gap between us and God, to, to change what we couldn't change, to, to, to make a way for us who are poor in spirit to meet the one who is rich in mercy. There was nothing we could do to change that, but he changed it for us. You see, the Bible isn't just some loose collection of stories that that we read when we're little and then forget about it when we grow up. The Bible's one big story that tells us about how God sent his son to do these things for us, to save us, God's people. And tonight, and tonight's part of that story, we see pretty clearly that there's only one way to life. Just one. There's not an endless number of options. There isn't multiple choice. There's a way that ends in life and a way that ends in death. And it's hard for us to admit that. It's hard for us to admit that we need him to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. But at the same time, it's incredibly freeing 
and incredibly comforting for us to realize that Christ has already done the work for us. The only thing we need to do is realize that and benefit from it. See, I've, I've talked a lot about how this way is narrow, and it's hard. But even the fact that there is a way, and it's open to us, is a result of His grace. If He didn't do this for us, there would be no way. There'd be one way, one path. And all of us would be on it. We'd all be headed towards destruction if He didn't intervene. If He didn't enter the world for us. Faith in Him. Faith in Him and Him alone is is all that we need to experience what He's done for us. To take hold of His grace which He freely offers for us. Without doing that, without acknowledging that, without having that impact us and change us, we're all on the road that we don't want to be on. Now, uh, as we kind of transition in the service to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a body, we should be reminded of what Jesus has done, that he has opened up this way for us. And this is a time where those of us who have trusted in Christ for salvation can together as a body celebrate what Christ has done for us. See, there's, there's not anything magical about this, this bread up here. There's nothing magical about the juice or the wine. There, there's nothing special about them. We don't get any secret benefits from drinking this juice. These are merely symbols. The bread symbolizes that, that Jesus' body was broken for us. The cup symbolizes that his blood was poured out on the earth for us, that he died, that he suffered a violent death. That's what they remind us of. Now, we don't celebrate that because we're some some morbid people who like death. We celebrate it because it's through his death, through what he's done, that we have life. And so that's why we celebrate the fact that he died for us. See, without Jesus, as I've said, there, there is that one way. But because of Jesus, there are two ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that because of your love and because of your mercy, even though we are a rebellious people, that even when we were your enemies, You sent your Son into the world to redeem it and redeem us. We thank you that your body, which was broken for us, and your blood, which was poured out for us, that they open up for us a pathway to salvation, a pathway to you. And that through your grace, which is given freely, to us through faith. We can experience lasting salvation, true forgiveness. When we can be free to live the life that you have created us to live. We ask that you would help us to celebrate that tonight together. That we would remember what you've done and we would praise you for it. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice for us. It's in your name we pray. 
Amen.